Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern-day Asian-American woman. My name is Mel. I'm Janet. I'm Dr. Jenny Wang. Hey there, everyone. We're really looking forward to today's conversation. Our guest is someone with an uncanny ability to help people feel seen and understood. Her name is Dr. Jenny Zume Wang, and you know her on Instagram as Asians for Mental Health. Dr. Wang is a Taiwanese-American clinical psychologist and national speaker on the intersections of Asian-American identity, mental health, and intergenerational and racial trauma. Her professional mission is to destigmatize mental health within the Asian community and empower Asian-Americans to prioritize their own mental well-being. As the pandemic first spread beyond fathomable proportions in 2020, social isolation grew commonplace and many of us relied on technology to stay connected to our loved ones and the outside world. Soon, hate crimes against Asians in America and other Western countries spiked and it felt like we were shouting into the void just to get someone to notice and acknowledge what was happening. During this turbulent and draining time, Dr. Wang's work on Instagram felt like the sweetest beacon of hope. Dr. Wang's posts speak directly to children of immigrants, children of culture, and the diaspora, and unpack experiences specific to our existence. With each post, she shares insight and provides a sense of grounding. Her debut book, Permission to Come Home, Reclaiming Mental Health as Asian Americans, was published by Grand Central Balance in May 2022 and is one of the first of its kind. Please welcome Dr. Jenny Wang. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you on. Yes. I am delighted to be here with you guys. I have been watching you guys grow and expand your influence and network for so long, and I'm so delighted to be here. Oh, we are so excited for this conversation, Dr. Wang. Um, the way we like to start our episodes out with guests is we want to just learn a little bit about you. So can you share with our listeners um, a bit about your childhood? How did you grow up? What was your family dynamic like? What was young Jenny like? You know, I was born in Taiwan, so I was there until I was about two years old, and then we immigrated to the United States, and we kind of landed basically in New Jersey, where I spent most of my childhood. I was there until I finished high school. And so, you know, growing up, I lived in a predominantly, you know, Jewish-Italian neighborhood. Being an Asian mm -hmm. kid was mm -hmm. kind of unusual. When I finished high school, there were about 10 maybe Asian-Americans in my graduating class. 
And so I think young Jenny at the time, I lived kind of these multiple realities, one being Taiwanese American at home, where my dad spoke to me in Taiwanese, my mom spoke to me in Mandarin, and then I went to school and it was right, very kind of white English speaking environments. And so I feel like in so many ways, I learned really early on how to code switch. Mm -hmm. I knew when I could turn on my Mandarin, when I could turn on my Taiwanese, when I could speak English, and kind of meet almost those spaces with different facets of myself. Um, and of course, I didn't know this growing up. I just knew this was my life. And now kind of looking back, I realized there were those pieces of me. Um, and I think my childhood, you know, was a generally happy one. But I think coming from a family, you know, where my parents are immigrants, there were really unique struggles that I felt like no one else was going through. And especially my Caucasian friends, where it was like, you know, they would come home and their dads would be like so excited to see them and give them a hug and say, I love you. And I'd just be like, what? Who does that? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think there were these interesting contrasts that I always wondered about. I felt, but didn't have the words for. And I think that's what in many ways informs some of my work today is that our experiences being children of immigrants is really unique in some ways, and especially coming from Asian backgrounds. Yeah. I love how you kind of described it as like, um, you felt a certain way, but, can you, you, but you couldn't really identify, you know, what was it that made me feel different? And um, I love that you also spoke these different languages at home. Um, I think Janet and I can also relate that, like, you know, we have to code switch sometimes and like kind of like adapt to the bubble we're trying to fit in with. Um, but I also like that you said that your history and your experience really played a role, played a role in your work today. You know, we know that today mental health is such... A topic that can be like really taboo in the Asian culture, but we're seeing that change right now. You know, for you, what drew you to study psychology? So that wasn't the plan. Mm -hmm. And I've said this kind of in, in other interviews before that I was studying accounting in college and, you know, doing the good old Asian thing, right? The very secure mm -hmm. or seemingly secure career. Um, and I just realized that what really made me feel alive was being with people. Right, was learning from people, getting to talk to people, and and accounting, as much as it is somewhat people-oriented in certain settings, it didn't feed that need, and it didn't really nourish my soul in many ways. And so I took Psych 101, kind of beginning of my junior year, just thinking like, what the heck, let's just see what this is about. And it really opened up kind of a, my whole perspective on what was possible in a career. And honestly, up until that point, I don't even think I realized that people became psychologists. I thought people just studied mm -hmm. psychology and then did something else, right? But it really helped me see that there was an entire field dedicated to understanding human emotion, motivation, connection. And that felt like it was the first time there was like a field of study that almost like spoke to who I was. And I say that because I think in many ways as children of immigrants, we have almost functioned sometimes as mini therapists mm. for our parents, for our siblings, for our communities. We are intimately in some ways involved in the lives of people around us. And so I felt like even from a young age, I learned skills of active listening, 
offering advice, mm-hmm. right? Helping people think through things simply because that was a role that I think my family needed. I was the eldest daughter. I was, you know, obviously more fluent in English. And so that was a role that I took on. And so this helper role, I think, was something that resonated with me. But I think that over time, I've also learned that that helper role comes at a cost. And what does that mean, you know, to hold that role but still take care of ourselves? Um, So I think coming into psychology almost felt like it was going to happen eventually. And I don't know what would have happened if I didn't take Psych 101, but it felt as though it was this perfect fit of who I was Mm. and this perhaps need in the world. Wow. I love how you just... It makes sense that you're a, you're a psychologist. Uh, you literally just like fine-tuned and identified and linked everything together, which I think is amazing. And I, I love how you talked about like in some ways you were already the role of a helper, being the eldest daughter, being the first English speaker. Um, Janet and myself are both the eldest, and I yeah. totally can relate to that. Um, and then you mentioned how in some ways being the helper, like in some ways it's really great because you're the one your parents, your family could depend on, but it comes at a cost. You know, besides being the helper, was there any stigma you yourself had to unlearn or address within your family that you noticed or realized as you studied more into your career? Absolutely. I think one of the first things that became really apparent, even just within family, but within our culture, is how silence Mm -hmm. can be so dangerous, especially in terms of mental health, right? I think Mm -hmm. that the stigma only breeds in that darkness, in silence. And in Asian culture, I remember, you know, knowing families where their child would either have a disability or a mental health struggle, and they would send the child back to Taiwan. That was a terrifying idea to me, that they would be separated Mm. from their parents and their other siblings and sent to live with relatives in Taiwan. And I remember thinking, that seems wrong, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, I don't necessarily blame those families because at the time there were no resources available to parents of Asian cultures or other cultures who were trying to understand how best to support, right, their children who either were neurodivergent, either had mental health struggles or different things like that. And so it felt like perhaps sending our child who would get more support in a country that we understood, maybe that was the best situation that we could have offered. Who knows, Mm -hmm. right? But I think there was this sense of we don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, we know that there was a kid and now they're not here. And nobody wanted to discuss what was surrounding the reason for their departure. And I think that that kind of unwillingness to speak to those perhaps complex, painful, or difficult parts of our experience within our culture really forces people to suffer in silence. Mm. It results in people becoming much more ill than perhaps they need to before they seek care. And it also shuts down our ability to gain the social support that we need because Mm -hmm. we feel as though if I admit vulnerability, if I admit that I'm struggling, I might be cast out. I might be separated. Mm -hmm. People may not understand. And so there's a sense of disconnection that Mm -hmm. comes with the stigma as well. There's a lot to unpack. And at the same time, I want to be very careful that we don't diminish our culture 
or see it from a deficit model, right? Mm. Which I think mm. Western mental health has always been like, oh, Asian culture, the parents are so strict, the families are so enmeshed. These are all bad things. Mm-hmm. Hold on, right? I'm not in favor of calling cultural things even as bad, right? Mm -hmm. It is a coping mechanism. It is a structural way in which people are organized. And instead of seeing it as the binary good or bad, could we understand how it benefits, what function it serves, Mm -hmm. and potentially what the cost is, right? And so I think even in my work, I'm trying to help our community see ourselves Mm -hmm. in a positive way, but also question some of these cultural frameworks that sometimes make us feel stuck. That is so well articulated. And as someone who has gone through years of therapy and oftentimes with Western trained therapists, um, I definitely can attest to the model that you're speaking about and um, very much love that you are trying to shine light on the fact that we should look at situations and just as context. Mm -hmm. Every culture, every society has just different systems and different ways of coping, as you've said. Um, so listening to the way that you kind of talk about this in this in this mission that you developed, uh, what was it that drew you to this specific niche within within your practice? You know, I would say that it kind of evolved organically. You know, when you start a private practice and I started, I restarted a practice here in Houston when we moved here, you know. You can't really say, like, I'm only working with certain populations. You kind of function as a generalist. And yet over time, you know, living in a city like Houston or being in a state like Texas, where there are a lot of Asian Americans, I think over time people started to say, oh, there's an Asian American psychologist. Let me try seeing her, you know. And so more and more Asian clients started to seek me out. And I think that it was, it felt very... Almost like it felt like aligned with my professional kind of evolution as well. Like I think in working with my Asian American clients, my own kind of even psychological frameworks and understanding started to evolve. And I think honestly, my clients are my greatest teachers in terms of how to do the culturally reverent, culturally humble work of being a mental health professional in a specific group or population. And I still feel like there's so much that I'm still learning about working with our community, you know? Um, And so it kind of evolved in that sort of way. And over time, just, you know, word of mouth and people started to say, hey, I think there's something about us paying attention to the unique nuances within our community that makes a difference in mental health, right? Mm -hmm. When we went through our, when I went through my cultural training courses in graduate school, it was one course, three hour credit. We never talked about Asian American identity. We only talked about, you know, what you would traditionally think on the kind of black, Mm. white binary of race. And Mm. I think I went to school in Texas and maybe in California, they were much more ahead in terms of, you know, really discussing Asian American mental health. Mm -hmm. But where I was trained, 
that wasn't even on the radar. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that work had to evolve from people's lived experiences. And honestly, even the themes from my book that I recently wrote came from observing these repetitive ideas and stuck points that my clients seemed Mm -hmm. to face and realizing that I faced them too. And being able to resonate with them in that sort of way was very powerful. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We want to dive into some more serious topics now. Uh, We know that within Asian culture, family is such a huge component. And uh, these are slightly heavier topics, but we know that this is the meat of it that a lot of our listeners will benefit from. Um, As children of immigrants, we know firsthand how the ideas of failure and success can be stressed from a very young age and is often tied to high educational achievement and professional achievement. Um, and sometimes even marriage and having children. In your practice and within your own family, how do you talk about success and failure? Um, and then separately, what recommendations do you have for framing these concepts in a way that you know, perhaps encourages learning and resilience and growth? This is one of those themes that I think as children of immigrants and you know, within Asian culture is one of the most powerful. Yeah. And... I think that one of the first things we have to kind of ask ourselves is what defines success for each of us, right? And I think what's really difficult is that when you come from parents or 
a family in which maybe you came with very little or you came to this country fleeing war, right? Fleeing poverty or trauma. Success might have very specific metrics, right? Stability, financial and economic, right? Resources, those become prioritized because they're the things in which perhaps our parents lacked. Hmm. For example, you know, my mom grew up in a family where they lacked very much. And because of this, she did not get to go to college, even though her two older brothers were, you know, sent off to college. And so then you think about, right, often as parents, you want to give to your children the very thing you could not access. So mm -hmm. things like educational attainment, high income, right, careers, financial comfort and stability become the priority and the model of success that's kind of packaged together and offered to the next generation. And in most cases, this is an act of love. They're not doing this to drive you crazy. They're not doing this so that you are in conflict with them. They're doing this because they perceive that this is the way to live a good life. Mm. I think the friction, though, and the conflict comes from what if your model of success doesn't fit the definitions that are offered to you? Mm -hmm. And also failure, those definitions are different as well, right? For a young individual who wants to pursue, I don't know, a career in the creative arts, right? Parents could see that decision alone as a sign of failure, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas this person might feel fulfilled and actualized and empowered pursuing that. So I think that's often where I start, you know, where, you know, we start to talk through what does it mean to live a successful life? What are the values mm -hmm. that you would adhere to in defining that life? And what are the metrics by which you are measuring yourself? Because oftentimes those metrics are externally right placed on us. And then when we talk about failure, there's so much fear of failure, right? And I think in some ways that's internalized from perhaps our parents' struggles, right? That often parents come and they may not have the social networks, the you know, generational wealth, right? Mm. That makes risk-taking tolerable. And so failure becomes a high stakes, right, situation. And I think as second, third, fourth generation um, children of immigrants, failure takes on a different form. We don't have to necessarily live in the fear of it. In fact, could we see failure as the path to success? And that's a very hard rewiring of the way that we approach mm. it. Whoa. <laughs> Are there? I love the way that you just talked us through and were able to flip and reframe that. What is the first step that you could suggest for someone to start reframing failure as a pathway to success? Mm. So one thing I like to do is I try to practice at some point in my week tolerating the sensation of being bad at something. Mm. <laughs> so mm. I'm trying to learn tennis and it's a hard sport when you haven't learned it and you're learning it as an adult. And it's frustrating. It's hard. It requires so much repetition and practice. And 
When I feel as though I'm struggling, I remind myself that that is building my tolerance for failure and that that failure is what is going to allow me to build that skill and Mm. succeed. And I always say to my clients, if you haven't failed in the last month, few months, then are you living life too carefully, too safe, right? Because failure lives at the margins of which mastery and competency has ended, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've mastered something, you're not going to fail at it. Yeah, that's true. You've gained that skill. But failure is those margins where you're like, oh, I'm only 50% competent. So some days I'm just not good at it. Or I'm going to try something new and I'm only 70% sure I'm going to be successful, right? Those are the spaces that reveal to us that we might actually be taking some risks Mm. that are worth taking, right? And I'm not encouraging us to like just fail like foolishly, right? I'm saying, Mm. can we be leveraging our tolerance for failure in the things that make us come alive, things that we're passionate Mm. about, things that we care about? Mm. Because that means that you're actually growing. Right, right. I love that. Yeah. So if there's anything for 2022, we still have half the year left for our listeners um, to challenge yourself to fail more in the areas that you're passionate about. Yeah. Love that. I'm gonna use I'm gonna use that first. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like I'm I'm getting so many like great tips and everything right now because I think a lot about like for me I value mine as like personal development and a lot of that is like trying something that you're interested in but like you know you're gonna suck at it in the beginning and that uncomfortable feeling is very awkward especially at our age where like we're in some ways like taught to master so many things like get promoted at work and like kind of keep like I guess just progressing along versus when you're younger, you're taught to try different things and see. And and if, it, if you don't do well, it's okay. But like for me, I'm trying to like surf and do all these things. I'm going to fall off the board a couple of times. But then I think once you like get up once, you're just like that feeling of like you accomplish something. It just feels so much more rewarding because you know, you're like, I was uncomfortable, but I was, I managed to get, to get over that. And it feels so great. So I love that piece of advice that you shared with everyone that Janet is noting her journal. (laughs) I do want to move on to a different topic that kind of does relate to cultural and family as well. You know, I think we all know that the Asian community is super massive. It is so diverse within our community and really nuanced. And our relationship that we have with our Asian backgrounds really varies depending on the person. You know, particularly for children of immigrants, adoptees, and perhaps parents raising children in the Western world, there may be a sense of like grief and loss with for our Asian culture. You know, can you speak to how this type of grief and loss can come up and how our listeners can honor these emotions? And, and this is why there's a whole chapter on grief in my book, because there are so many. Mm. And I think growing up, I never thought about how growing up in a different country other than my homeland was a source of grief. Mm-hmm. It didn't register in that sort of way. However, I do remember memories of grief, right? Every time I would visit Taiwan and I knew it wouldn't be for another three to four years that I could see my grandparents or my cousins because we couldn't afford to travel every year. That was grief, Right. And every time I cried about not being able to go back 
to see my grandfather after he passed, right? Like that was a source of grief. And getting emotional even right now, it is a grief that we hold, right? So I think there's something about naming that grief, naming the grief that I've been called Jenny my whole life, even though that was not my birth name. Mm. That is a source of grief, right? The idea that, you know, for many different reasons, you know, our kids won't or are currently unable to speak Chinese the way that I can, that is a source of grief. There are just so many layers to the grief for Asian diasporas that I think we don't even recognize as grief. And so I think that when we are, you know, and for me, I say I'm like 1.5 generation because I um, was born there, but pretty much raised here in the United States that, you know, even the distance between myself and my parents is a source of grief. And I think that being able to cross that distance and define the bridge makes me grieve because sometimes I know that I will never be able to fully get there, if that makes sense, mm. to fully cross over to where they are. I think that as parents, one of the most powerful things that we can do for our kids is to teach them to love their heritage. Because that's something that honestly, I don't think I came to appreciate until maybe my 20s and 30s, right? There was a, oh, these are the foods that we eat. These are the things that we do for holidays and rituals. But there wasn't this deep, I am proud of being Taiwanese until I was much older. And now my kids, I mean, they're like so loud and so proud about who they are. But I don't think that that was something that will just happen naturally when you're growing up in the United States. And so being intentional with that sometimes feels like a balm for some of the grief that we might feel. I don't know what to say without crying. <laughs> so um, I think that's everything Let's you said. Let's just cry together. <laughs> I know. I'm like starting to get really, I, I start crying. Um, I think everything you said I could just really resonate with. It's okay. Yeah. Oof. I know Mel also um, would go back to Taiwan every couple of years when she was younger as well. Mm. Um, and I think her grandfather also was going through a pretty challenging time. So I think she just feels very much of that. Um, and and I love the very specific examples you gave. These are topics of grief and loss, but that we just accept them as everyday things um, because they become commonplace, right, among our friends who are immigrants. Um, and, and you had talked about how being able to to talk about it could become a way to embrace that that grief and that loss. Are there any other ways that you could offer our listeners um, any tips for how to kind of like address these beyond kind of talking about it? I think that when we grieve, it's not only in the mind, it's mm. in the body. Mm. And I actually have not been back to Taiwan since my grandfather has passed because of COVID. But I'm pretty certain that when I go back with my kids, my body will grieve in a way that I've never experienced. Mm. And I think that grieving can come in the form of even just walking, right? And processing mm. or moving or yoga 
or crying, right? That is how our body metabolizes those emotions and soothes the pain, which we know Mm. in grief, it doesn't ever go away. But we become a bit stronger in carrying it as we move forward. I very much love that as well. And that was something that I I personally, when I was going through a period um, of more intense therapy, I did yoga very regularly at the recommendation of my therapist. And there were moments where I would randomly cry during yoga. (laughs) But it was, um, I definitely could feel like it's, it's letting yourself experience the grief. And oftentimes movement can help do that for sure. So that's a great tip. Yeah, thank you for talking about grief and loss is such a, a big prominent topic within within our culture. Additionally, you know, within within Asian culture, there's this concept of saving face that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are very familiar with. Um, is there anything that you'd like to talk about in that theme? So I always like to say kind of like saving face in some way feels like a value, right? It's like Mm -hmm. we value the importance of the reputation that we hold for ourselves, our family, our community. We value maintaining a positive standing within community, which is understandable, you know? And I think oftentimes saving face is painted as this like bad thing, right? Like, oh, it's, it's so damaging. It's so harmful. And it's, Again, I don't like painting it in these binary terms. I think on the one hand, we all kind of try to save face sometimes, right? Like Mm -hmm. I choose not to wear my fuzzy slippers to bus pickup or school (laughs) walk-in because I don't really want to be viewed that way, right? And so it's not a bad thing. It is a way to interface Mm. with society. Mm -hmm. But I think that at what point does it become problematic for us, right? And everybody Mm. has a different point where the priority of saving face comes in opposition with the value of authenticity or honesty Mm. or vulnerability, right? And when those things come into conflict, what am I moved to choose, right? in how I show up, how I present myself. And I think saving face, especially within the idea of mental health, right, becomes sometimes problematic because we feel as though having a mental health struggle might bring on a collective shame Mm -hmm. for our families, for ourselves, for our community. And so we do our best to like, I always say kind of like grinned through our teeth. I'm okay. Mm. Everything's fine when you know you're not okay, right? Mm. And so I think sometimes I think of it as saving face is something that I can pick up and I can also set down, right? Mm. It's something where I can carry and then say, you know, for these times, these moments, these experiences where I feel safe, I can let that part of me rest and allow myself to show up vulnerably, trusting that that vulnerability also builds connection with other people, right? And I think that is one thing we could all do to destigmatize mental health is to try to more often set down the armor of saving face. Mm. And to just show up maybe with a little bit more authenticity 
and realness. And I think that alone could change mental health in our community. Wow, that's such a powerful way to kind of reframe saving face. I think in a lot of ways, we always feel like this forever tattoo of this persona that we always have to have on, especially I see this in my, like my parents' generation. And for us, I feel like I have to carry that, carry that with them. But the idea that, you know what, for an hour, I'm going to set it down from time to time. I love that perspective. Um, I do also want to talk about, you know, we kind of talked about like, you know, um, being children of immigrants and uh, coming from our motherland to here. Um, And, you know, I feel like though Asians have been in this country since at least the 1800s, it seems our like cultural relevance has become more relevant recently. You know, we'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, identity and visibility in the U.S., especially in relation to the painful experiences that have happened, you know, since 2020. You know, sometimes I've heard people say that Asians in the United States, it feels like we're the invisible race, Mm. right? And I think that in some ways, right, people have always kind of said, well, Asians are always seeking proximity to whiteness. That's why, right, they are invisible. Because they try to assimilate, because they try to do X, Y, Z. And for me, I'm kind of like, have we considered the conditions that Asians have had to live in that have prompted us to have to cope in that sort of way, right? Because if you think about it, model minority, right? I mean, I bought into that when I was a kid, right? Like when I was a teenager, I thought that was a good thing. Like, why would it be bad to be seen as this? Mm -hmm. And yet, if you think about the features of the model minority myth, right? That we're docile, we're hardworking, um, we don't rock the boat, all of that. If you think about common trauma responses when people feel unsafe, we have fight, Mm. flight, freeze, and then feign and fawn. Feigning and fawning are these ideas that you might comply with your attacker, you might minimize and shrink yourself in order to be protected from future attack. Model minority myth fits these trauma responses very well, Mm -hmm. right? And so in many ways, I feel as though the invisibility functioned sometimes as a protective mechanism for generations of Asian Americans who could not protect themselves through representation, through leadership, through laws, right, through legislation. And if we think about, right, like we recently had the anniversary of Vincent Chin's passing, it wasn't until then that Asian Americans were a protected class, right? And so if you think about living in conditions where you could be killed or harmed with no real consequences or recourse, right, way back when, when Asians couldn't even testify in court against a white person, then what other protective mechanisms do we have but to hide? Hmm. And I think we also have to think about 
is that still working for us? Does that work for the three of us? Does that work mm. for my children who will one day be right Asian American adults? Because those protective mechanisms perhaps functioned well under the context of earlier generations. But now, our generation, we speak English often fluently, right? We are educated here. We're in places of representation and leadership. It's different. And so can we learn new protective mechanisms, new coping mechanisms for our next generation so that we can move away from invisibility as our primary response. That is a great way to frame it. Um, I, I love getting our listeners to think more deeply about perhaps, I mean, many of our listeners are, I think, a little bit younger within our generation and so maybe are more accustomed to a louder approach um, to representation and maybe confused by past generations and why there is this tendency to not want to rock the boat. And I think you framed it so well as to look at it, um, instead of responding with confusion or anger, really empathize with their perspective and perhaps why it developed um, as a state, you know, as a behavior and as a coping mechanism. Um, and then to think about, yeah, so how do we want to show up in our generation um, and really consider the context of our society and our, what we have available to us. Um, so I love posing that question to our listeners for each of you individually. How do you want to show mm-hmm. up, you know, in, in terms of our present day? Mm-hmm. Identity and invisibility aside, um, we also know that kind of in the similar vein, hierarchy and respect are um, traditional values that are very common within our culture. Um, so we're, I mean, these things kind of reinforce themselves, right, <laughs> based on that that um, that kind of that cultural value. But in your experience, clinical or otherwise, how have you seen these values and habitual behaviors um, associated impact Asian culture and perhaps society in general. Um, And additionally, because many of our listeners do balance both this Eastern and Western culture, um, have you observed conflict within like a single individual who's trying to hold these Asian values of hierarchy and respect, but then also balance Western values, which may have opposing values? I think I see this manifest a lot, especially in the workplace for Asian Americans, Mm. right? Because if you work in a semi-corporate kind of environment, hierarchy is steeped within that, right? And so what you are taught as an Asian American or within your family structure that is a sign of respect, right, within that kind of space of your life may actually be seen as passivity, weakness, right, poor leadership skill, right? Whereas in Asian culture, that's seen as, oh, they're very thoughtful, right? They're very um, respectful. They do not interject. They do not question. They do not challenge. Because sometimes those behaviors are seen as inherently disrespectful, Mm -hmm. especially to someone higher along in the hierarchy, right? 
And so I think that one of the things that we kind of have to think about and question is, is it helping me to reach my goals by adhering to these hierarchy structures, right? So if, you know, I'm getting feedback consistently at work that um, I'm, I'm not demonstrating kind of the attributes typically seen in leaders, right? Um, I have a lot of, there are a lot of problematic things with that as well. But that aside, you know, then we kind of have to say, well, what are the barriers that are keeping me from being able to manifest those qualities, right? Is it a skill deficit? Like, do I need to, you know, really hone and work and practice on my leadership skills? Or is it that I'm actually implicitly or explicitly functioning under this hierarchy model that I'm used to coming from an Asian family and really struggling to overcome, right, the fear of being seen as disrespectful if I offer new ideas or Mm. question, right, my leadership. And this is why I'm really big on, because I do a lot of corporate speaking, that when kind of these corporate environments want to promote Asian leadership, I often say, okay, so what is the culture of the company in terms of psychological safety, Are you creating an environment where people are being invited to question and to challenge? Or are there very harmful consequences that happen to people when they do that? Because that is not a space in which then these leaders can really grow and thrive, right? And so I see this really come up. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, in Asian culture, we don't, we're not really encouraged to like brag or Mm -hmm. boast about what we're doing. And yet sometimes in Western culture, that's kind of what you need to do in order to be noticed, Mm. right? For talent development and progression. And so it's in a way almost opposed, like Mel said earlier, to what is expected of you in the workplace. And so having to, in a way, reorganize and reorient the way we approach this idea of self-promotion self-advocacy and not seeing that as a bad thing within hierarchy. That is a really big challenge. And that's one of those areas that I work a lot, Mm. you know, with clients is Mm. how do we start to slowly practice that? Because when you challenge and you come from that hierarchy framework, it's going to bring up a ton of fear. Hmm. And what do you do with that fear? Because if you avoid the fear, you're not going to do it. You're not going to challenge the hierarchy, right? Hmm. And so there's a lot of work that we do around those topics. Wow, that's very insightful. It it makes me just think about a lot of things. Like, I like how we talked about like, well, is this company or is, is this, is your mission to create this environment where people feel safe to challenge? Because I think that is a big question kind of like I feel, I feel like the last two years it's a lot about us just being like questioning the system because sometimes the system actually isn't conducive for us to really you know progress as as Asian Americans and it also makes you think about like being in an Asian household I think sometimes you're taught to never talk back to your elders and things like that but like even for me there's there's just such there's a lot of clash going on with generations you're like can I speak up and just call that great aunt out really quickly no I can't because I'm literally (laughs) gonna get so in trouble by my parents but Mm -hmm. 
I think within even like the company or like with your family, there's always going to be some problematic type of behavior that you want to correct or try to fix. But it, you're always trying to kind of, you're kind of contrasting these two different things. But I like um, the insight that you shared and that question you gave to companies. I think that's really helpful. I do want to switch it over, Dr. Wayne, to talk about your book which mm-hmm. I'm actually really excited to read after just talking with you. I'm just like, oh my gosh. First of all, congratulations on publishing your first book. Uh, would you mind sharing with our listeners you know, your process and how you came up with its title, the premise of the book, and what you hope readers will take away from it? Um, also, mm-hmm. if you could also throw in, you know, in what ways would your past self have found the learnings and permission to come home valuable? Yeah, so the title of my book is called Permission to Come Home, Reclaiming Mental Health as Asian Americans. And, you know, I always say that I knew the title of the book before I even knew kind of what the chapters would contain. I think this idea of permission really resonated with me because I felt like in Asian culture, we've just talked about hierarchy and all of that, right? There's almost this sense that I had throughout most of my life that I was constantly asking others for permission, can I do this? Mm -hmm. Which college should I go to? What should I major in? What should be my career? There is always this outward orientation of permission seeking. And I really wanted this book to be almost like a meditation on the ways in which we can claim permission for ourselves, right? These spaces in our lives where we could actually be the agent or driver of change. Instead of always looking to others for the answer or the response or the correct path, could we be the ones that gave ourselves permission to do the things that felt aligned with who we were? And then coming home, right? I think as a child of immigrants, I don't know that I ever really feel at home, right? When I go to Taiwan, I'm too Western, my Chinese is not amazing enough, right? It's just, you always feel kind of like sticking out. And then you come to the United States and especially in the last several years, right? You're being told to go home to your country. You're being discriminated Mm -hmm. against. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I have lived in the margins of spaces and this idea of home always felt really elusive. And I think I wanted this book to kind of come to the end of us realizing that home is something that we construct ourselves. It's not a place. It's not a country. It's not even a group of people. It is a condition of being safe, feeling like you belong, where you can be authentic and where you can experience true compassion, right? Which is being seen, for who you are by other people. And so I think that really was kind of the, the grounding thought of this book. Um, and so each of the chapters, I invite people to kind of question, to kind of wonder, does this fit? Does this, when I put this on, when I pick it up, this cultural framework or this old idea, does that make sense for me and who I am and the time of my life that I'm in? And if not, can I give myself permission to sometimes set it down, to release from it completely, and to move forward in a direction that feels right? 
Um, and they often say that, you know, you write books that you wish you had, mm. right? And I think mm. this very much felt like a book that I wish I had when I was in my teens or in my 20s. Um, because I think that these themes, they run across ages, right? They run across identities. And these were the painful parts of my life and ones that I've observed in my clients that keep coming up again and again. And ultimately, I wrote this book for my kids because one day they will be like us and they'll be in their 30s or 40s and wondering, who am I and what am I doing here and what is my purpose? And so that was the goal of the book. Oh, well, thank you so much for that invitation. Note for our listeners, you can find permission to come home at a bookstore near you. Definitely pick up a copy or multiple and share them with your friends. Um, Dr. Wang, thank you so much for sharing your incredible insight into the Asian American and immigrant experience at large. Uh, next, we have just a few fun questions that we wanted to ask to get to know you a little bit better. Um, first off, what are some of your favorite ways to unwind? Ooh, okay, let's see. I do like to run um, just as a way to process stress out of the body. Um, and so nice. that's something I try to do a couple times a week. Um, I'm a huge crafter, so when I have time, I like to be creative if it's just making jewelry or cross-stitching or something, just keeping your hands kind of in this active motion um, is really soothing for me. Um, and then I also, I, I do go to therapy and I feel like it helps me kind of create space around my life because life gets mm. so busy yeah. and it allows me to really um, listen. You know, I think it, it creates space so I can tune out noise. Mm. And um, and then, of course, like snuggling my kids. That always helps, like, Aww. just to unwind. Oh, that's so sweet. How old are your kids, by the way? I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. Nice. That's so sweet. You mentioned that you go to therapy. Are there other ways that you check in with yourself? Yeah, so when I have time, I try to journal or if anything, like make lists, not even like narrative journal format, but I just try to make kind of mental lists of themes or ideas that I'm kind of like trying to chew on. Um, and that sometimes helps me see things that I can't notice actively when I'm, you know, so busy. Um, and then I think being with friends, mm -hmm. right? Friends who know you well, that is such a nourishing thing. And also they're great at being like, sounds like this is happening right now. Mm -hmm. Sounds like this is something that really is resonating with you. I think people having those outside people who can really observe into your life and offer you feedback um, is a really powerful way to check in. Most definitely. And what are you most excited about professionally or personally for the rest of 2022? That's a really good question. You know, I will be honest that coming out of May, which is kind of one of those months for our community, um, and then book kind of launch things, I'm in this like weird limbo where I don't know what I want to do next. And so I think I'm allowing myself to be in that limbo. And so I can't say, you know, what I'm excited about because I haven't decided what I want to be excited about yet. Mm. Um, and July is my birthday month. So I guess I'm excited to celebrate my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Happy early birthday. Yeah, thank you. Oh my gosh. 
I was going to ask you, do you have any plans? <laughs> um, well, it's my last year in the 30s. So I, you know, wow. I have some plans with friends, have some plans with my husband and then family. So lots of different little celebrations punctuated throughout the month. Um, and yeah, I think it's just just really being, allowing myself to be yeah. and not work and not stress or strive. Yeah. I think that's what I'm most looking forward to. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for emphasizing that. I like to focus. My plan is to focus on being mm-hmm. for the rest of 2020. I'm going to use that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and Dr. Wing, where can our listeners find and follow you? Yeah. So, um, I am on Instagram at Asians for mental health. I also have kind of a Facebook, um, and then you can find more about me on my professional website, um, jennywangphd.com. And that has links to my book as well as, um, for individuals who are seeking therapy or, you know, speaking engagements, um, that would be the best place to get in touch. Thank you. Yes, listeners, we definitely recommend giving Dr. Jenny Wang a follow and checking out all of her resources. Guarantee you it will be life-changing. Thank you for being here with us today. Again, Dr. Jenny Wang, you have created such a special space with Asians for Mental Health and helped to democratize mental health and remind us of the agency we all have in our lives. Thank you for your work and for sharing your story with our listeners. The future of wellness for our communities is bright. Thank you so much. If you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and share this episode with your friends. You can also support us through monthly donations at anchor.fm slash asianbossgirl slash support, or get some merch at asianbossgirl.myshopify.com. If you resonated with today's episode, let us know in the comments of our IG post. And if you'd like to put faces to our names, you can find us on YouTube where we share vlogs, an audience Q&A segment called Dear ABG, and much more. Our handle on both platforms is at asianbossgirl. If you'd like to send a shout out to a friend, check out our link tree in our link in bio and click on shout outs. And last but not least, thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all her magic on our episodes, including this one. And with that, we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye! Bye.